All right. It's the new year. New year. 2022. 2022? Huh? What do you mean? It's, what do you mean? Oh shit, no, my brain just stopped for a moment. I, for a moment, I, I genuinely thought I was living 2020. <laughs> oh my god, guys. Welcome to Hidden Among Us. I'm your host, Chris. And this is Honda. And welcome to episode 71, aka our New Year special, aka Happy New Year's, everyone. Yes. Happy 2022. Happy 2022. I saw this person on Twitter who was like, 2022 sounds like 2022. Like the part two, and I was like, no, we're not, we're not manifesting <laughs> this energy going into the year. I also saw this other person who was like, in 2022, we are not going to talk about like manifesting things, you know. And I was like, I'm kind of conflicted about that. I feel like when the new year starts, when we say things like, oh, this year I want to do this, right? I want to achieve this. Aren't you like manifesting it with good intentions? Uh-huh. So the universe will take it as a good thing. So it's not going to become a bad thing. I guess people are tired of hoping because it's a like never-ending pandemic thing. Oh, man. Yeah, I know. I get that. Wow, really? <laughs> you sound like a glass half-empty and I'm like a glass half-full person like right <laughs> now. <laughs> no, but like, for real, I think... I think the past two years have beaten us down so much that like, what is the hope in hoping? We're going to be working adults. Listen, we're not manifesting that. (laughs) We're not (laughs) manifesting that dark energy, okay? We're manifesting, we are going to be well-paid working adults with an excellent work-life balance and uh, great sure. company culture. Sure. Listen, I've been receiving way too many TikToks on my FYP about like sad work cultures where everyone's just like crying. And I'm like, you know what? I I don't want that. <laughs> I don't want that for me. I just, I just, I, I don't know. Am I am I am I being too optimistic? I mean, is there anything wrong with being optimistic? You know what? So right now, we're all just going to gather together and manifest good things about this year and set goals that we want, realistic goals that we want to achieve, you know, and we'll all just work towards that. And I think it's completely normal and I think it should be normal and I think we should just take things one step at a time. Small bites to reach the end. Well, I'm a great motivational speaker. Adam Koo who? Okay. <laughs> Let me say, has anyone been to Adam Koo's workshops? Hana, have you ever been to Adam Koo workshop? No. 
Adam I Thing, forgot so. who, but I had this conversation about Adam Koo workshop. Like, I never went to an Adam Koo workshop, but I went to a workshop that was similar to Adam Koo's workshop. And there's usually like this one day, right, where uh-huh. for some reason, the instructors get super aggressive with the students. And I think it's supposed to be like this cathartic thing where they let their negative emotions go. I don't know. It's, it's a weird thing. And I remember during my workshop, that happened. Like they turned off the lights and everything. And the instructors started yelling. And I remember like this instructor coming up to me and like yelling about being a role model or something to my sister. And I also blacked out completely. <laughs> and I don't remember what happened after that. Because um somehow it's a traumatic memory as well. And I'm just wondering, like, why do they do that? Why is that a thing? I feel like I have a repressed memory as well. Like, in secondary school, there was a similar... I don't even know what day or what, like, it was. I think it was for, like, the final year students. And then, like, mm-hmm. I don't know, like, half the girls are, like, just crying... I don't know. I don't even know like what that whole thing is. I'm just why? Why did it make us go through these things? Has it benefited us in any way? Have we become better people? Uh, I don't think so. I think I'm like worse. Now I'm anxious. I have anxiety. So that I don't cool. Is that what you wanted? You wanted me to get rid of my negative thoughts and become an anxious person? <laughs> I don't know. Like, why? I remember there was this one guy, there was this dude in, like, my course who... Everyone remembers him because he had, like, this little bald patch on his head. And it was because there was this one time, apparently, he got so upset, he pulled out his own hair. And his parents sent him to this course. And I remember... And this was before I blacked out. <laughs> <laughs> I remember the instructors like pulled the chair, pulled it so aggressively that it like turned over. And then he like shoved it at the kid and he was like, kick it, kick it, think it's your parents, release all your anger. And what the hell? And I was, like, standing there crying, being like, what am I doing here? Please. Oh my god, it was terrible. Also, not us having repressed memories of this. Also, not us discussing this on, like, freaking New Year. (laughs) You know what? Forget all that. You know what? We are going to focus on good things this year. We are going to get... New Year, new me. (laughs) Yes, you know what? You know what? Let's manifest a good energy. New Year, new me. We will achieve what we want to achieve. We will do (sighs) what we want to do. All the positive affirmations. This year will be a year of good health, good mental health, and good wealth. All of us are going to have coins in our purses. Yes. I hope. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, Honda, do you have a case for us today? Yeah, so to start off the new year... We're going to be talking about John Edwards Robinson. <laughs> a part of it me just... is going to be like, hmm, the scene doesn't sound familiar. And then another part of me feels like, as you go through the story, I'm going to be like, oh my God, I know that guy. <laughs> but for now, the name isn't ringing many bells. Mm. 
Yeah, so John Edwards Robinson is an American serial killer, con man, embezzler, kidnapper, and forger who was guilty in 2003 for three murders committed in and around Kansas City. And he's also dubbed as the internet's first serial killer. I'm crying. This guy's resume is full. <laughs> He'll be hired instantly by the Any crime criminal. industry. <laughs> <laughs> the criminal organizations will just <laughs> see his long list and it'll be like, you know what, you're hired. Stellar record. Stellar <laughs> record. Skills in many areas. <laughs> Very hireable. <laughs> okay, okay. I wish my CV was that. Yeah. <laughs> but anyways, uh, Robinson was born in Cicero, Illinois. Um, the third of five children um, of an alcoholic father and a disciplinarian mother. Oh, God. You know what? Great combination. Explains his CV. It's always like these, you know, like parents, one of them would be like alcoholic, one of them would be too strict. Yeah, I. Uh, it's so shitty. <laughs> On one hand, like, I feel for him. On the other... I feel like whatever I'm about to hear about him is going to make me unfeel everything for him. Mm. Yeah, so in 1957, he became an Eagle Scout and travelled to London with a group of scouts who performed before Queen Elizabeth II. Oh! <laughs> yeah, so he also enrolled at Quigley Preparatory Seminary in Chicago, a private boys' school for aspiring priests. Quickly. But dropped out after. <laughs> but dropped out after one year due to disciplinary issues. Okay. He, later in 1961, he enrolled at Morton Junior College in Cicero to become a medical ra- radiographer, but dropped out after two years. And then in 1964, he moved to Kansas City and married Nancy Joe Lynch, who gave birth to their first child, John Junior, in 1965 followed by a daughter, Kimberly, in 1967, and twins, Christopher and Christine, in 1971. Chris, then both of them right on your heads. (laughs) (laughs) Tougher. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and then in 1969, um, Robinson was arrested in Kansas City for embezzling $33,000 from the medical practice of Dr. Wallace Graham, where he worked as a radiographer using forged credentials. And then he was sentenced to three years probation for it. Okay. Yeah, but then later Robinson violated probation by moving to Chicago without his probation officer's permission and gained a job as an insurance salesman at the R.B. Jones Company. Hmm. Then he was arrested for embezzling from funds and was ordered back to Kansas City where his probation was extended. Okay. And then in 1975, this probation... Who's that car? Flexing. Yeah, and then in 1975, it was extended again after an arrest on charges of securities fraud and mail fraud in connection with a phony medical consulting company he had formed in Kansas City. Mm, Okay. He really cannot just do a normal job. Yeah. Hmm. 
Um, so Robinson became a scoutmaster, a baseball coach, and a Sunday school teacher. Sunday school teacher? <laughs> do they not do background checks? I don't know. I find it funny because it just seems like committing crimes is his main job and like actual jobs <laughs> are like his side hustles. <laughs> <laughs> His stable for stable income. Yeah. <laughs> and then in 1977, he was named to the board of directors of a local charitable organization where he forged letters from its executive director to the mayor of Kansas City and from the mayor to civic leaders, naming him as the organization's man of the year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then under that guys, he hosted an awards luncheon in his honor. <laughs> Okay. So yeah, strange. so in, I know, right? Yeah, so even if he completed his extended probation, he was arrested for the embezzlement and check forgery, for which he served 60 days in jail, jail in 1982. 60 days? Okay. Yeah, it's actually really, really light, even when he violated probation for his earlier charges. Yeah. Maybe they saw it as, like, not the biggest deal. Maybe forgery, I don't know. Forgery might be more heavy, I don't know. Or embezzlement. Yeah, I, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe the judge was an, yeah. was uh, SJW, who was, like, anti-capitalism. He's like, you know what? Go, queen. Embezzle those <gasps> funds. Take that money. <laughs> Modern day Robin Hood. <laughs> Modern day Robin Hood. <laughs> Except he doesn't give it to the poor. He just steals from the rich. That's why modern day. <laughs> no. <laughs> Not you implying that, that people these days have no moral compass. Okay. Yeah. So after his release, he formed the bogus hydroponics business and stole 25000 from a friend who he promised the fast investment return so the friend could pay for his dying wife's health care. Oh my God, it's so sad. I know, right? And then in 1984, he established two more fraudulent shell companies and (laughs) Robinson hired Paula Godfrey, 19 years old, um, to work as a sales representative. Yeah. So Godfrey told friends and family that Robinson was sending her away for training. But after hearing nothing further from her, Godfrey's parents filed a missing persons report. Mm-hmm. Please question Robinson, who denied any knowledge of her whereabouts. But then several later, several days later, her parents received a typewritten letter with Godfrey's signature at the bottom, thanking Robinson for his help and asserting that she was okay and did not want to see her family. Red flag, immediate red flag. Yeah, so because of this, the investigation was terminated as Godfrey's as Godfrey was of legal age and there was no evidence of foul play. <laughs> they didn't find it suspicious. I guess not. There was there, I, there was no evidence, I guess. I think that's the the scary thing because 
if you are a legal adult and you go missing, right? It's not even like you automatically. I never automatically. It's like the immediate assumption is that you went away on your own will because you are an adult. Mm, yeah. But that sort of ah oh man. Yeah, it's like okay. a lot of people can go missing because usually those of yeah. your age and above, like they don't really report it. And it's only after they are gone for a very long time. And if there's foul play. And if there's foul play, oh uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So as a result, no time, trace of Godfrey has ever been found. Yeah. So as a result, no trace of Godfrey has ever been found. So in 1985, using the name John Osborne, he met Lisa Stacy and her four-month-old daughter, Tiffany, at a woman's shelter in Kansas City. He promised Stacy a job in Chicago, an apartment, and daycare for her baby, and asked her to sign several sheets of blank stationery. Fuck this dude, honestly. I don't know why she trusts. It's like, doesn't it sound too good? like a job and then an apartment and then daycare for her baby yeah but like I mean look at the circumstances she he found her at a woman's shelter right so yeah. and she also had a very young child so I think even in that situation it's like desperation to survive and to you know protect and you know feed your child so I mean it's easy to fall into a trap like that when you're so desperate and, and that's mm-hmm. why I said like fuck this guy is because he I think he knew that he could take advantage of these vulnerable people I mean his friend that was trying to pay for his dying wife's treatment yeah yeah so a few days later Robinson contacted his brother and sister-in-law who had been unable to adopt the baby through traditional means and informed them that he knew a baby whose mother had committed suicide. So for $5,500 in legal fees, Don and Helen Robinson received Tiffany, which is the baby, and a set of authentic appearing adoption papers with the forged signatures of two lawyers and a judge. But Lisa Stacy was never heard from again. So she, he essentially gave the baby away to his brother and sister. That is disgusting. Imagine the baby, you know, like when she goes out and then she learns about it. Oh. I, read a few ca- I read a few cases where like, um, this is one pretty famous case. They also made a Lifetime movie about it, as I know about this case, but it's about um, this woman who essentially stole this baby and the thing is like many years later the kid actually found out what happened and she found out that Mm. she was like but the thing is like this lady who stole the baby right she gave like the baby like a good life Mm -hmm. yeah so even until today they keep in contact she still refers to the woman who stole her as a mother it's just a very shitty thing to know that like your life is sort of a lie Mm. Yeah, and I, I mean, once again, like, you're taking advantage of a little child, like a baby. A baby is not going to, like, protest and be like, no, I don't want to go with you because it's a baby. 
and then you know the parents yeah uh, the biological parents as well it's it's And later in 1987, Catherine Clampett, 27, left with left her child with her parents in Wichita Falls, Texas, and moved to Kansas City to find employment. And then she was hired by Robinson, um, who you know promised her extensive travel and new wardrobe. She vanished yeah. in June of that year. Hmm? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so she. She vanished in June of that year, and her missing person's case still remains open. Okay. It yeah. still remains open until today. He's good at hiding bodies. Not really hiding. He knows how to dispose of bodies. I see. Okay. So yeah, it has to remain open it. because they haven't found a body, right? Yeah, usually it's like that. Because, you know? Yeah. Unless they really know that she died. Like, it's confirmed that she's died. You know, she has died. Okay. Yeah, so from 1987 to 1993, Robinson was incarcerated. Um, in, first in Kansas from 1987 to 1991 on multiple fraud convictions. And then later in Missouri for another fraud conviction and parole violations. Okay. Yeah, at Western Missouri Correctional Facility, he met 49-year-old Beverly Bonner, the prison librarian, who, you know, when he was released, she left her husband, who was a prison doctor, and moved to Kansas to work for him. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, so after that, Robinson arranged for Bonnie's alimony checks to be forwarded to a Kansas post office box. And then her family never heard from her again. So for several years, Bonner's mother uh, continued forwarding her alimony checks and Robinson continued to cash them. That's a shit. Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, this was the time. I know. He literally killed them, you know, to finance himself. Yeah. And it's not just that. It's like, as I said before, he intentionally takes advantage of vulnerable people. Mm-hmm. So it was a time when um the nickname, not nickname, where he, you know, when I said earlier where he's the intent, like he's the first internet killer. Yeah. Yeah. So this is where he discovered the internet and he roamed social networking sites and using the name Slave Master, looking looking for a woman who enjoyed playing the submissive partner role during sex. Not Slave Master. Uh, Okay. Yeah, so one of his early online friends was Sheila Faith, 45, um, whose 15-year-old daughter, Debbie, was a real was in a wheelchair due to spina bifida. Mm, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, to for Sheila, you know, to be with Robinson, Robinson portrayed himself as a wealthy businessman and philanthropist and offered to pay Debbie's medical expenses and give Sheila a job. Thing is, I think he actually 
from like conning people, he might have actually had enough money to help. Mm. I guess he's good at the acting part, you know, to convince. Yeah, so in 1994, the mother and daughter moved from Fullerton, California to Kansas City and then they disappeared. Both of them. Um, yeah. Oh. God. Robinson cashed um cashed faith um, pension checks for the next seven years. Seven. Yes. Because she wasn't declared dead, so you know he just continued collecting. Surely there must be someone like a social worker or something that looks into these things. But there's so many people in the US. You know how can they keep track? If they don't hear anything, like no one reports anything, then you know <laughs> they just fall through the cracks. You're right. I think that's my biggest fear. Also, is if I <laughs> yeah, I go missing and no one notices. Honda, would you notice if I went missing? Chris, who? <gasps> <Don't remember> Chris. <laughs> so slave master <laughs> became well known increasingly um, among popular BDSM online chat rooms why? I don't know I, mean, I guess he to convince like to convince so many women thus far I guess he has some kind of charm or he knows what to say Ew, God. I don't know in 1999, he offered a job and bondage relationship to Isabella Lewica, a 21-year-old Polish immigrant living in Indiana. Not this, no. <laughs> yeah, so when she moved to Kansas City, um, Robinson, who at this point is still married to Nancy, gave Lewica an engagement ring and brought her to the county register where they paid for a marriage license that was never picked up. So, if they don't pick it up, does that mean they're legally um, married? No. I mean, if, if it's not picked up, but it's still made. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, so it's not known if Louika believed that she and Robinson were married, but she told her parents that she had married, but never told them you know, the husband's name. Oh, that is suspicious. I'm sorry. If I know, right? Me, if somebody called me, if you were to suddenly call me and be like, hey, I got married. <laughs> and I'll cool. be like, oh, like, <laughs> um, first of all, why was I not invited to your wedding? Second of all, who? And you're like, I'm not going to tell you. And then you disappear. I'm going to be like, uh, right? Honda has been murdered. I'm calling the police now. <laughs> That's so suspicious. Do you think he was like telling her not to tell her parents? Maybe. I feel like that's plausible. Either that or like the nature of the relationship. Because it's just, it's not conventional. Maybe it's just something you could take advantage of and like, you know, convince her that her parents didn't need to know. Yeah. And she's really young. She's, yeah, she's pretty young. She's like 20, 21. What do you say? 21. Yeah, she's pretty young. Yeah. And because he off, at the, when they first, 
when they're first in the beginning stages of their relationship, mm-hmm. you know, he offered a bondage relationship. Ooh, so she yes. signed a 115-item slave contract that gave Robinson almost total control of every aspect of her life, including her bank accounts. Fish. Yeah, so Christian Grey behavior and Christian Grey is Molly Grey. So, sometime during the summer of 1999, she disappeared as well. Oh my god, yeah, yeah. But he Robinson told a web web designer he employed that she had been caught smoking marijuana and was deported. Did he deport? I guess that was his cover story. Yeah. Okay. I'm pretty sure they don't deport people for that. But mm, I would say they can deport people for literally anything. Yeah, but mm, I mean, if you were to tell me that, I'd be like, sure. Yeah, a bit sus though, but I feel like. She's more likely to go to jail or have to do like probation than get deported or I guess it depends how lazy the justice system is. If they don't want to deal because it costs money, it costs money yeah. to incarcerate someone. So might as well deport them just cheaper. True, 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 true. <laughs> Either way, we, we agree that it's just dubious and not yeah. very believable. So around the time of her disappearance, a licensed practical nurse named Suzette Truton moved from Michigan to Kansas to travel the world with Robinson as his submissive sex slave. Um, Truton's mother received several typed letters signed by her daughter and purportedly mailed while the couple was abroad, although the the envelopes all had the Kansas City postmarks on it. Oh, Okay. So, you know, they're not. I mean, it shows that they're not actually abroad. Yeah, they just. Okay, well. Yeah, so the mother noted that the letters were uncharacteristically mistake free. So I guess Suzette Pruden usually doesn't have mistake free like letter writing. I know. Is that a read on her own daughter? <laughs> she's like the letters are too well written to be from my daughter but later Robinson told Chun's mother that she had run off with an acquaintance after stealing money from him <sighs> okay yeah you know up until this point he did so much you know make a lot of women disappear and then you know no one really yeah, no one suspected this man. He's like a common yeah, denominator, so, guys. Yeah, so he became increasingly confident, I guess. So of he became course. more and more careless with his, you know, with his other, with his future um, murders. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he, he was unable to, like, avoid, you know, detection like he used to. Yeah, so by 1999, he attracted the attention of, of, of authorities in both Kansas and Missouri. Because, you know, as you said just now, he is the common denominator of all of these yeah. investigations. Yeah. 
he was later arrested in June 2000 at his farm near Lassine. It's C-Y-G-N-E. How do you pronounce that? C-Y-G-N-E. Sign? Okay, I'll go with that. Lassine. It's either that or Signe. I don't think that's right. It sounds ugly. (laughs) English is such an ugly language. Oh God, I'm so sorry. (laughs) Yeah, so he was arrested after a woman filed a sexual battery complaint against him. And then another charged him with stealing her sex toys. Okay. Yeah, so the theft charge gave investigators the probable cause they needed to obtain search warrants. I mean, it's not even just that. This guy has a history of, like, stealing shit. Yeah. Like, that should be, like, the first red flag, right? Well, okay. Yeah. So on the farm, um, the, the task force found the decaying bodies of two women later identified as Lewica and Truton, oh. the more recent victims. In, but then they were found in two 85-pound chemical drums. He was trying to dissolve the bodies. Yeah. No. And because they're in there, you know, he didn't dump them out in the open. So yeah. essentially, who, who would chance upon these drums, right? Yeah. Yeah, so across the state line in Missouri, other members of the task force searched the storage facility where he rented two garages. And then they found three similar chemical drums containing corpses. They were identified as Bonner, Faith, and her daughter. All of them were killed in a similar way. Um, to one or more, they had one or more blows to the head with a blunt instrument. Just... Later in 2002, Robinson stood trial in Kansas for the murder of Truden, Lewick, and Stacey, and multiple lesser charges. After the longest criminal trial in Kansas history, he was convicted on all counts, and he received the death sentence for the murders of Truden and Lewick, and life imprisonment for Stacey's murder because she was killed before Kansas had reinstated the death penalty. Mm. Yeah, so he then received a 5 to 20 year prison sentence for interfering with the parental custody of Stacy's baby and then 20.5 years for kidnapping Truton and 7 months for theft. So he's essentially going to die in prison. He threw in that 7 months just to like (laughs) as a cherry on top. Yeah. So after his Kansas convictions, he faced murder charges in Missouri. based on the evidence they discovered in that state. And Missouri was aggressive in its pursuit of capital punishment convictions. It is Missouri. And Robinson's attorneys wanted to avoid a trial there. This guy, oh man, but I feel bad for his attorneys. There's just, (laughs) what can he defend? What can he (laughs) defend? Yeah, so the prosecutor for the Missouri side, um, Chris Costa, insisted as a condition of any plea bargain that Robinson's 
Britta Robinson would lead authorities to the bodies of Ceci, Godfrey, and Clampett. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then Robinson, um, who has never cooperated in any way with investigators, refused. Of course. I'm not surprised. Yeah, but, but the prosecutor still faced pressure to make a deal because his case was not technically airtight because there's no bodies. Yeah. Other than the ones they found yeah. in the barrels, there's... I mean, usually you hear nobody, no case. So yeah. he really needed. I mean, the, the only thing they can the go off on is that these people worked with were him around yeah, him. Yeah. Were around him. But then Robinson also had faced pressure to plead guilty to avoid an almost sudden death sentence in Missouri. Yeah, but then it became clear that the woman's remains will never be found without Robin's cooperation. So there was a compromise (laughs) and there was a carefully scripted plea in October 2003 where Robinson acknowledged that Costa had enough evidence to convict him of capital murder for the deaths of Godfrey, Clampett, Bonner and the Faiths. Mm. Yeah, but his statement is technically a guilty plea and was accepted by the Missouri court. But um, observers remarked that it was notably devoid of any contrition or specific acceptance of responsibility. So he received a life sentence with a possibility of parole for each of the five murders. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So life sentence, so life imprisonment for each case, for each murder. Yeah, he's never going to come out, so... This is the Missouri side only, and then the Kansas one already has a death penalty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in November 2015, the Kansas Supreme Court vacated the Truton and Stacy murder convictions on technicalities, but upheld the Lawika conviction and its accompanying death sentence. Mm. Yeah. So Robinson currently still remains on death row at the El Dorado Correctional Facility in Kansas today. I feel like he'll die first before. Yeah. Mm, Yes. So this is the story of John Edwards Robinson. Well, thanks, Honda. This guy is really... What a way to to start the year. (laughs) Oh my god, this guy. So scary that, you know, someone like this can go undetected for so long. Yeah. And, wow. The way you could get away with it, too. To us, it sounds like the most obvious thing. Like, duh, please look at this guy. But he got away for so long. I guess because he also crossed state lines, which made it harder. Which made it harder, yes. Completely agree. Yeah. So, I mean, I feel like we don't really hear about serial killers recently, mm-hmm. but I feel like there always is a serial killer. There always is a serial especially killer. Especially in the US. Yep. Like, sometimes yep. I always see, like, posts about, like, suspiciously, like, suspicious cases of missing people in a certain area. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's so scary to think, like, there might be someone out there preying on, you know, innocent people. Yep. And it's usually vulnerable people, people who, if they were to disappear, and I'm doing quotation marks, if they were to disappear, nobody would come looking for them. Yeah. It's just, it's so sad. Oh. 
Well, Honda, um, my paranormal story for day for today is the completely <laughs> complete opposite of yours because mine is kind of lighthearted and fun. That is good. You can balance my story. How are we gonna balance your story, man? Okay, well, so today my paranormal story is on the demon cat of Washington D.C. Demon cat sounds cute. I know. Okay, once again, I stumbled <laughs> upon this purely by accident, and I kind of love this when I was like researching it. Um, yeah. So Washington D.C. actually has like a whole bunch of cryptids, including this thing called the Bunny Man. Awesome. <laughs> like what is happening in Washington DC, guys? Yeah, so this is the what she uh the Washington cat. Oh god, this is a demon <laughs> cat. Also affectionately called DC, which I find quite funny. Oh, this so, cute. <laughs> yeah, and you know what? We both love cats. <laughs> we love cats. I love cats. They're so cute. Yeah, I, I know this cat from work that he's crazy. His name is Patch. He's insane. He and I found this out recently. He only likes to jump at me. He doesn't do this to any of my other colleagues. Like he will jump on me. And he does this thing where he will jump. And I will have to catch him mid-air. So he will jump. I'll catch him mid-air. And I will slam him onto my shoulder. Yeah, he's insane. He's also tried to like choke me once. Because I was walking by his cage. <laughs> and he grabbed the back of my shirt. And I legit like leaned back. I was like... <laughs> Well, okay. You know what? I'm just gonna dive into this story. I before I start talking about cats, because I freaking oh no, never ending. (laughs) Yeah, never ending. Okay, so this cat, the demon cat, is identified as either a black or tabby cat. Um, is a ghost cat that haunts government buildings in Washington D.C., particularly the White House and the United States Capitol. Ooh. <laughs> it is believed that the appearance of the demon cat is a bad omen. So oh. this cat appears before tragedies and presidential elections in DC. Mm-hmm. Which I find hilarious because it's like, oh, this cat appears before tragedies, but it also appears before presidential elections. So it's almost as if saying presidential elections are a tragedy also. Mm. <laughs> I guess it's not wrong. So Yeah, it's not wrong. It's not wrong. Um, This cat first appears like a regular cat or even as like a harmless kitten. But the strange thing is that it can grow to the size of a giant tiger or elephant. Elephant? Okay. Mm-hmm. Its eyes will glow brightly, almost like the headlights of a fire engine. So this is according to a Washington Post article. And the demon cat would pounce on the victim, but would disappear before being able to catch them. Mm. In a Washington Post article in 1935, a Capitol policeman claimed that the cat had eyes of Eddie Cantor and the generous proportions of Mae West, plus the disposition of Belga Lugosi. And I have no idea what this means. (laughs) But something about saying a cat has the generous proportions of Mae West is hilarious. Like, men will literally... Say shit why? like this. Like, no offense to men, but like, why would you say that about a cat? 
a demon cat. <laughs> oh my god. The demon cat's origin dates back to the mid-1800s when cats were brought into the Capitol building to kill rats and mice. The demon cat was one of the cats who apparently didn't leave the building Mm -hmm. even after its death and roams around the buildings, making the basement crypt of the building its home. This crypt was originally intended as a burial chamber for President George Washington. It appeared several times at Capitol Building during the Civil War, even once causing a guard to shoot at it, to which I say, why? Like, why would you shoot at a cat? But when the guard shot at the cat, it mysteriously disappeared. Another guard also allegedly had a heart attack and passed away after seeing it. As I mentioned before, the cat is seen around government buildings. The cat had appeared before the death of John Quincy Adams and before the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. A White House guard once witnessed the demon cat before the stock market crash of 1929 and another night watchman is said to have seen the cat before JFK's assassination. Oh, interesting. Imagine just being on your rounds at night and seeing a demon cat and you're like oh shit something bad is going to happen but you have no idea what and then you find out the next day it's the stock market crash oh my god so what is the story behind this cat so one of the theories is that this cat is actually called I'm going to attempt to pronounce this Taige Tige, I'm going to call it Tige. T-I-G-E, which is the tiger cat that belonged to President Calvin Coolidge and his wife. It's called a tiger cat, but it's really just a striped cat. Okay. Um, Tige had a... I think Tige sounds weird. Tiger, I'm just going to call it Tiger. Tiger had a knack for exploration, leaving the White House to explore the city for days at a time. Honestly, this just sounds like neglect to me. Please don't let your cats wander outside. It can be very dangerous for them, especially if they're domestic cats because they don't know how to survive in the wild. But Mm -hmm. you know what? This was like a long time ago and maybe like animal care wasn't as advanced as today, but you're hearing it from me, folks. Please don't let your cats wander around. Keep your cats indoors. Remember to fence your windows and front door gates, whatever, so that they don't run to the street. Thank you. Hide your cat. Yeah, <laughs> hide your cat. Um, but the cute thing is, every time Tiger left, his escapade would be reported on the news. My next like, my next point is, sounds like misusing taxpayer money, but okay. <laughs> kind of cute though, like. This presidential cat suddenly going on a little adventure and then it's on the news like, please keep an eye out for this cat. Thank you. <laughs> uh, there was once where Tiger left for a long time, which eventually, which eventually led to a search for him. His disappearance was broadcasted on Washington radio stations <laughs> before he was eventually found by Navy Guard Benjamin Fink. Hmm. And this cute little cat was actually found around the Navy building. Though the origin of the demon cat could also be attributed to a guardsman at the Capitol 
who may may have drank a little too much and had awoken to a mouse cat in the basement. Um, in his inebriated state, the cat appeared to be very large because this man is drunk. So, <laughs> you know, the cat appeared to be very large and appeared to be the size of a tiger. It then pounced on him, causing him to fall to protect himself, but the giant creature mysteriously vanished. Once again, this guy was drunk. Um, interestingly, there are a few pieces of evidence left behind by this purported demon cat. In the concrete of the small... English. In the concrete of the small Senate rotunda, there are shallow... There are shallow paw prints, though there is an explanation Aww. for this as well. I know it's so cute, like tiny little paw prints, Aww. so adorable. Anyway, there's an explanation for this. Okay, so in 1898, the Capitol building was damaged from a gas explosion, and some parts had to be replaced with concrete. A cat mm-hmm. must have strutted across the wet, the wet concrete, <laughs> thus immortalizing its prints. It's so cute. In my primary school, we had like this area that was like newly cemented, right? Mm-hmm. And you can actually see paw prints in it. A cat so like cute. actually walks across it. So they're, they're like immortal paw prints in this little like portion. It's so cute. At another part of the building, the letters DC have been carved into the concrete, suggesting that the demon cat had scratched its little initials into the ground. <laughs> <laughs> and... <laughs> This is cute because like does this mean that the cat is sentient? Can it write? Does it know its name? Does it know that it's called Demon Cat or DC for short? I know. never know. The cat just signed. Yeah, the cat just signed. It's just like DC. This is my area. <laughs> I'm not marking territory like other cats. I'm writing my initials down. This is legal. Um, Chief Tour Guide of the U.S. Capitol Historical Society, Steve Livengood, guess he's Livengood, merely chalks the stories of the demon cat. By the way, Honda is like rolling her eyes. So Steve Livengood so merely chalks the stories of the demon cat up to drunken guardsmen back in the day who weren't <laughs> well-trained and sometimes drank too much. The last time the demon cat was seen was in 1940 during the final days of World War II. Which I find it kind of ironic because this cat is a bad omen. But if it appears mm-hmm. during the final days of World War II, isn't that a good thing? Unless something happened in the final days of World War II. Maybe it was. You're right. It was bad for Hitler. <laughs> and I guess the Japanese. I'm so sorry. But yes. Makes sense now, Honda. You're right. <laughs> um. Anyway, my point is, maybe this poor little cat is just misunderstood. You know, cats are usually mm-hmm. just blamed for everything. It's just a, yeah. it's just a little misunderstood meow meow. You know. And online, there is an article with a title wondering <laughs> if the demon cat had appeared before the Capitol riots. And you know what? I wonder too. Where was this cat? Maybe it didn't show up. Maybe it showed up and like no one paid it any attention because like it's just a cat. 
Um, today, the Demon Cat is used as a name for a professional sports team. The DC Demon Cats, the professional women's roller skating team. And you know what? Good for them. So yes, um, this is the story of the Demon Cat of Washington, DC. Something short, something lighthearted to start the year with. Something definitely cheerier than Honda's story. <laughs> <laughs> a cute story yes i also added a little psa here where i say that lots of black cats end up in shelters and are often overlooked when up for adoption and you know what black cats are super cute and affectionate i freaking yeah. love black cats they have like super cute big eyes that will look at you with so much love because they know you <laughs> give them food i just freaking I love that. Yeah. I love the famous like black cat, like Instagram like cats. Like, they have like really weird owl eyes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you see a black void in your house and then yeah. suddenly you have eyes. <laughs> the cute little voids. They're so cute. I love black cats. Going back to my real life stories about cats, I knew this little black cat that when it first came to us, it was extremely aggressive. Hated humans, couldn't even get anywhere near him. We had to wear leather gloves just to like change his food. But my God, slowly like I introduced like treats to him. So I I was like, you know what? I want to gain the trust of this little cattle. He's so cute. He's a little void. He's probably been through something traumatic so like mm-hmm. i bought treats and then i gave it to him and at first he was like no i'm not gonna i'm not gonna try this but then he tried it and he really liked it and he slowly came out of his shell and he became oh my god he became the most affectionate cat ever so cats will never ever roll on their back and expose their belly because like it's a weak spot for them right this cat would just roll over he just loved to roll on roll over on his back he loved belly scratches cutest little thingy and like a few weeks ago he got adopted and mm. the, the 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 people that like adopt these cats out they always do like a two-week home trial just to make sure that mm-hmm. the cat can you know acclimate to the house everything's going well yeah it's been more than two weeks now so he's found his little forever home Aww. And I'm so happy for him. Tuxedo, if your name is Tuxedo still, I, I love you. You're, you're still my little son. So cute. Listen, I love cats. They're little misunderstood little creatures. And don't trust dudes who say they don't like cats. Yeah, never. You know what? Never trust anyone who says they don't like cats. And never ever trust anyone who says that cats are like, um, they don't care about people. They do. Cats love so deeply. Mm-hmm. It's just that cats understand boundaries. They do. So yes, if you have a cat, remember to mesh up your windows and your doors. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. get them vaccinated every year and dewormed. And I would say cut down on the treats, but it's so hard. <laughs> to... <laughs> well, you know what? Happy New Year, everyone. Hope that my story brought you joy and Honda's story brought you <laughs> reflectiveness. <laughs>
if you enjoyed this episode and want to support us, please rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts, leave us a review, and click that follow button on Spotify. You can also listen to us on Google Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Amazon, and whatever podcast platform you listen to. And you can follow us on Instagram at HGU Podcast. Share us a message or send us a story if you'd like. You can also email us at hiddenamongustree at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. And you know what? We won't see you next week because we'll be on hiatus for a bit. But we will see you soon. Bye. Mm-hmm. Bye. Bye.